0: if so you have a Bible with you, looking at John chapter 8, starting at verse 12. And just as a side note, because someone will ask me after, the passage that comes right before this, the woman caught in adultery, you notice in your Bible, it says earliest manuscripts do not include this. So the story really goes from the end of chapter 7 to, to where we are right now. It's one continuous story, and whether or not the Story should be in there or not is irrelevant for this purposes. So, anyhow, starting at verse 12 of chapter 8, I say to you, hear the word of God. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning again that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf Jesus, you claim to be light of the world. I pray this morning that you would shine the light of your face into our hearts and consciousnesses, and you would open our eyes. And if we are, or, or they're already opened, I pray that you would fill them with your glory. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, this morning, yesterday, I finished up my sermon, and I wrote it, and it was about nine pages long. Just so you know, they're usually about six pages long. And so I was going through it this morning, and I thought, hmm, this is a complete violation of the Costanza Principle. And so I cut a bunch out, just so you know. What's the Costanza Principle? Costanza Principle is, if you've ever watched Seinfeld, there was an episode where George learned that if he told a joke and people laughed and he stayed and kept talking, they became disgusted with him. But if he told a joke and people laughed and he immediately left, he would say, I'm out of here, and he'd walk out and they'd say, man, we love George. And so I would rather have you say about me, I wish Tommy would preach longer than I wish he wouldn't just keep yammering on. So that's where we are this morning. But it's coming to open. I want to ask you a question. Are you familiar with this man? anyone his name is mortimer adler mortimer adler was a philosopher and an author he was an editor for the encyclopedia britannica if you're familiar you know if you're old enough to remember the big encyclopedias and mortimer adler he was also big in the great books movement if you're familiar with great books and he wrote a book one of the books of many that he wrote At least for me personally, it was one of the most important books I've ever read in my life. And and it remains to be one of the most important books I've ever read in my life. And the title of that book is How to Read a Book. Now, why why is that book so important to me? Why was it so important to me? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is that it helped me to survive seminary. And the other is that it challenged me to read or to listen to other people's arguments with integrity and I'll I'll explain what that means in in a minute so how did how did this book help me to survive seminary and even my doctoral studies later on well seminary professors are a little tricksy right because they have ways to manipulate you that secular professors don't and so a lot of my professors they would assign thousands of pages of reading they would they assign four or five big theology books and would say part of your 25% of your grade let's say is going to be simply you signing a, a declaration yes i have read all the reading so if you didn't read all the reading you couldn't sign it and so you got a 25% ding if you signed it and lied then you had to live with that in your conscience the other op- option is to just try and read it but when you have four or five classes each giving you thousands of pages of reading how do you get through that well that's where adler comes in you see adler basically when you read how to read a book he says there's four kind four ways to read a book two of them are irrelevant for today one, one of them is elementary reading and that's just do you know how to read period and there's another method of reading called synoptic reading which is basically where you're comparing authors side by side the two methods that are important were most important to helping me survive, is he is one type of reading is investigational reading, and the other is analytical reading, right? So what is investigational reading? Well investigational reading is when you take a book. So my professor wants me to sign, Tommy, did you read that whole book? Investigationally, yes. In other words, when you're going to read investigational, you read the table of contents, you read the introduction, you read the last paragraph of every chapter, and you read the conclusion of the book. probably take you an hour. And for the most part, you get the idea of what that book is about, and you can pass the test, which I always did. And so when the professor said, Tommy, did you read the reading? I would say wholeheartedly, yes, I did. Investigational reading. That saved me, right? Because it really saves a lot of time, especially if the book is dull. The other kind of reading, though, is analytical reading. And analytical reading is where sort of time doesn't matter and you're really trying to read a book to try and understand what an author is saying. Like you're just digging into that book. You're reading every line of that book. And the thing is that Adler would say is that basically um, not only are you reading it for understanding, but you're trying to, and I'm quoting him now, is to develop a personal opinion about its validity. In other words, the author is making some claims He's made, he or she, is making a case for something. And not only are you trying to understand what they're saying, you're actually trying to determine whether it's valid or not, whether it's true or not. And honestly, if you want to know what the opposite of that looks like, just watch any newscast, conservative or liberal, right? People just they see things that they want to see, whatever they do. Adler says, no, you should read a, a person's argument or listen to it, and then you, you basically determine, um, Did, they have, did, did they, were there evidence to this claim? Did they have documentation? Was there solid argumentation? And if there was evidence and there was documentation and there were witnesses and there was solid argumentation, then Adler would say, you're obligated to actually change your opinion. That's something you don't see very often. But that's what he says. Now, why is that important to, to our discussion today? It's because when we read the Bible, we should be reading the Bible analytically. We should be reading the Bible for, for understanding, but also we should be considering the claims that the Bible makes and is there validity to them, right? And if there's validity to them, are we willing to change to conform to what that claim says? So the whole Bible does that. In the Gospel of John, it's especially important to read that way. Now, why? Because as we look, basically in the Gospel of John, John records Jesus making claim after outlandish claim. I mean, really, if you heard someone on the street making the kind of claims that you hear Jesus making, you would probably think he was insane. And so Jesus comes into the world making all these claims. For example, he says, you know, I'm the bread of life. We looked at chapter 14. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are pretty high claims. And the question is, when he makes them, are there witnesses? Is there evidence for those claims? Is there documentation for those claims? And is he making a solid argument? I would argue that each one of those four things, Jesus meets the standard. And so if he meets that standard, the question is, what are you going to do now? Right? especially for the people that are arguing with him. In the Gospel of John, there's this constant antagonism of, of religious people against Jesus, and he's making, he always makes a claim. He brings his evidence, his documentation, Old Testament, if you will, and then the question is, what are they going to do with this claim of Jesus? Do they understand it? And if they understand it, what about its validity? And if it's valid, how does that gonna, what does that mean for their lives? Does it change anything for them? And so the same is true, true for us, right? As we read the claims of Jesus, the question is, is, has he made a solid argument? Has he made a case that what he is saying is true? And if it's true, what does that mean for us? Is it going to change us? Is it going to move us one way or the other? So this morning, um, basically the claim we're looking at this morning, obviously, is that where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And this is going to shock some of you. This morning, I have one point. I had two originally. Remember, I told you I cut some things out. One point today, but it's going to be one big, fat, long one. I tell you that. So one point, and basically the point today is basically just an incredible claim. Let me read to you again what Jesus says, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, what does Jesus mean by this claim? Um, you know, what, what makes it incredible? Well, first of all, we got to consider the context of this claim. So Jesus makes this claim at the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrimage feasts that the Jews had. And a pilgrimage feast was basically Jews from all the known world would come to Jerusalem. Passover was another one. They would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And they would come, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two major ceremonies that were the high points of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And basically what they would, they would come to... The Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate specifically God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Okay, so this thing is happening. They're celebrating the the release from bondage in Israel. And then there's two big events that they use to celebrate these. And the first is a ceremony of water or a water-pouring ceremony, right? That they would take these big jugs of water and they would make a big hullabaloo. And they would pour out this water and they would read the book of Exodus and during that, basically the ceremony of water, remember, here's what Jesus said when they were doing that ceremony. Verse 37 of chapter 7. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So they have this water pouring ceremony to, to commemorate when God delivered them from Egypt and he gave them water from the rock. And just as that is happening, Jesus stands up and says, if you're really thirsty, come unto me. If anyone is thirsty, come unto me and drink, and I will give you water that will spring up for, for eternal life. That's a pretty big claim, especially in that context, because he, Jesus is inserting himself into their history. He's inserting himself into the, to this great historical event where, where God delivered them and gave them water from the rock. But wait, there's more. It gets better because the people are divided after that, right? Verse 40 of chapter 7, it says, when they heard these words, the crowd, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was, and so there was a division among the people over him. So the people are divided. And so what does Jesus do to to, to quell this division? He just keeps stoking the fire. So he said, you know, if anyone's thirsty, come unto me and drink. And then notice in verse, our passage of chapter, verse 12 of chapter 8 says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, the second ceremony that they did was, the first was the pouring of water. The second ceremony they did, the last thing they did, was this big ceremony of lights where they lit these four huge lights and that would commemorate God's intervention into chaos and creation with light, but also God's leading them out of Egypt with a pillar of fire, right? Light. And so Jesus stands up in that context and says, I am the light of the world. And now the question is, what does he mean by that when he says it? And I think in order to really understand how, how big this claim is, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis. In fact, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Old Testament is the context for this, but I think you'll see how it helps us understand what Jesus is getting at here. Let me read to you Genesis 1, 1 through 4. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. So what happens here? If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 4 through 1 through 4, it says, Now the earth was formless and void. This is before any of the creation stuff started. And the words there in, in Hebrew, formless and void, are tohu va-bohu," and then darkness is Vahoshek. That's important. Those, word, those words are important because those are the same words that are used to describe Israel's experience in Egypt. And those words mean chaos and bondage. And so at the very beginning of creation, it says, now the earth was formless and void. The earth was in chaos and in bondage, right? Something happened between verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. And what does God do then? He intervenes into the chaos of original creation with light. And in Hebrew, it just says, God looks and he just says, Light! And it happens. It intervenes. Light drives out darkness. He separates the darkness from the light day one. Okay? So God is the one who intervened into the original crea- chaos of creation, and he separated the light from the darkness. And he does the same thing, basically, in Israel, right? Israel is in bondage. Israel is in slavery. Israel is in a state of tohu, v'bohu, vho right? Formlessness, void, and great darkness. And God comes, by his grace, by the way, he comes and he intervenes into their chaos. He intervenes to deliver them. And not only that, so when you look at Exodus, what happened there... In Exodus chapter 13, so God has, has the the plague of the firstborn has happened, Pharaoh has released them, they go out into the wilderness, Pharaoh decides he's going to pursue them, and here's what it says, it says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So, Israel has, has gone, and so, they, they, so that they can continue their journey, whether it's the nighttime or daytime, the pillar of fire goes before them. The light of God leads them. But it even gets more interesting because remember, they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's barreling down behind them. What's going to happen now? We read that to you. It's chapter 14, verse 19. Pharaoh, it says, And the Egyptians shall know that I'm Lord, I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved. And he went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So what did God do there? Basically, he separated light from darkness. That Israel was not just following the light. When the, when Egypt was coming to, to barrel down on Israel, the, the pillar of fire moved behind, and it was dark on Egypt's side, and it was light on Israel's side. That God, The first thing God did in Israel is he, he intervened into their chaos. He separated the light from the darkness day one, and what is the next thing He does? He separates the sea from dry land, the Red Sea. You see any parallels there, <laughs> right? That God intervenes into chaos, God, God delivers his people, and then he leads his people. So we read all of that kind of stuff. And what does that, how, what's that have to do with Jesus? How does that tie to Jesus now standing up and saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think he's saying at least three things here. That basically Jesus is saying, I'm the one who intervened in the original chaos. I'm the one who's come to intervene into your chaos and bondage now. So Jesus wasn't just like sort of some guru that says, oh, I have light, you know, like follow me and I'll I'll enlighten you. Jesus is saying, I am the one, the, the one who is active at creation, the one who is able to intervene in the original chaos of creation. That's who I am. I am that Light. I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who intervened in original creation, in chaos, and I'm the one who is here to intervene into your chaos now, into your darkness, your brokenness, your bondage, your sin, you know, your slavery. That's the. I mean, that's basically the other thing he's saying. He's basically saying, I delivered you from Egypt then, and I'm the one who delivers you now that Israel had no hope whatsoever of delivering themselves from bondage, from delivering themselves from slavery. They needed an act of God, something that would intervene on their behalf and would, would take down Pharaoh and would lead them out. Jesus says, I'm the one who delivered you then. I'm the one who delivered you from your slavery in Egypt. And I'm the one who will deliver you now from your slavery to sin. Remember later on in John chapter 8, Jesus says something like this, and, and he's talking about this, and the Pharisees say, we've never been slaves to anybody, which is complete ignorance. They've been slaves in Egypt. They've they, they probably led the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is celebrating their deliverance from slavery, and yet they tell Jesus, we've never been slaves. And Jesus bottom lines them and says, well, you know what? Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So all of us here, by nature and by choice... Are slaves to sin? The question is, have we been delivered from that? Jesus comes and says, "I came to deliver Israel then, and I come to deliver you now. That's who I am." And finally, he says, "I'm the one who enables you to break through the darkness and walk in the light." I mean I don't think we talk about that very often in, in church, at least in our church. What does it mean to walk in the light? We talk talk a lot about sort of being delivered from darkness, but what does it mean to walk in the light? Jesus expects us not only to to trust him to be delivered out of our darkness and out of our sin, but he expects us to actually walk in the light. He expects us to to follow him, and that's the the issue. Jesus basically goes to the cross, and he bears our darkness, and he bears our shame, and he bears our guilt. He bears our chaos. He bears our bondage. He bears all of that. He bears the curse that was against us. He does all that, and if that's true, if that's true, then you and I have nothing to hide, we have nothing to prove, and we have nothing to lose. I'll say that again for you note-takers. Right? If, if Jesus is the light of the world, and he has intervened into our chaos, and he has taken the darkness onto himself in order to give us his light, then we have nothing to hide anymore. You have nothing to prove anymore, and you have nothing to lose anymore. That should give you an incredible sense of freedom does it not but the issue is there's only one caveat one qualifier there and the only condition for experiencing Jesus as the light of life is just this you got to follow him Simple. I mean like he said that whoever follows me whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life so that, that means two things really right so on one hand I think he, it's a call to salvation. Have you followed him in the sense that you have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? You've trusted Jesus to 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 deliver you from the bondage that you feel. You've trusted Jesus to deliver you from your guilt and you continue to trust him. The other thing though is are you following him? In other words, are you following him where he leads? You know, I went when I got out of college, I went to to a number of different churches I didn't know a Baptist from a Catholic and I remember going to one church where the pastor was basically berating people who felt like they were far from God right That seems an odd thing to do but he was doing that and I remember him saying to people who felt like they're he was like you feel far from God and you know you, whatever people were thinking he said well God didn't move you moved we said that again he would say he said God didn't move you moved Now, I was a new Christian, and I thought, hmm, I don't know if I believe that. Why wouldn't I believe that? Well, I didn't believe that because I've read the book of Exodus. What happens in the book of Exodus? God moves, and you better move with him. God moves from point A to point B. What's your job in the book of Exodus? I just imagine you're waking up in the morning, the little kids running and screaming, Mom and Dad, the pillar's moving. Oh, boy, pack up the tents, get everything ready, get the camels, everything, let's go. Like when the pillar moves, when God moves, you move. Now, it may be the case that people are backslidden and they're, you're, you know, you're far from God because it's your own fault. That's a different sermon. What I want to point out to you now is I think God expects us to follow him where he leads. And so, for example, um, are, are we moving when Jesus moves? Are we following where Jesus leads? And, and let me give you a perfect example of that me and Judy right you know for, for 20 years I've been here on staff for about 17 and over the years I've gotten lots of phone calls about people who said hey what do you think about coming over to our grasses greener church <laughs> and I never did one interview not one time never even considered it because it never felt like Jesus was leading it that he wanted us to follow him to this other church that also had a lot of problems and so when all this stuff with Spokane started coming up, and at least the way I understand it, all these different people are saying, what about this, what about this, what about this? It just, I was like, okay, I, I think the pillar of fire has moved to Spokane for us, for our family. But are you sensitive to that in your own life? In, in other words, what I'm getting at is where is Jesus leading you now? Have you ever thought about that? My guess is most of, most of us in this room haven't. We've just thought, well, I'm just going to go to church, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to eat lunch, and I'm going to watch some sports, I'm going to take a nap, I'm going to wake up in the morning, take a shower, go to work, come home from work, eat dinner, watch a little bit more TV, go to sleep, wake up the next day, lather, rinse, repeat, blah, 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 blah. Where is Jesus leading you in the midst of all that? Have you ever thought about that? If you haven't, I'm encouraging you to do that. You know, maybe you're retired and you could be involved in missions. Maybe you're young and you could be involved in missions. Maybe you're, you're middle-aged and, and you think Jesus wants you to, like, he's leading you to start a Bible study. Like, are you sensitive to that? We don't talk about that very much in persevering churches because we're very, like, objective. And we're sort of like, it's all about the math. It's all about the theology. Well, you know, and some sometimes it actually has to be about your heart. And where is Jesus Leading you? Where is he taking you as he is the light of the world in your life? And the question, you know, if if, if I talk to individuals, most people at some level are afraid to step out. I am at some level. Took 20 years. But if you're afraid to step out, let me remind you that that the remedy for being afraid to step out, the remedy for being afraid to take a risk is what I'm going to call the Jack Arnold principle. Okay, what is the Jack Arnold principle, if I can find it? Look at the last verse. Like, so all these people hate Jesus. They want to arrest Jesus. And look at t- verse 20. It says, these words he spoke in the treasuries he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I'm going to call that the Jack Arnold principle. Now, for those of you, if you haven't heard me tell this story before, Jack Arnold was a friend of mine. He was, he was a seminary professor of mine, and he was a pastor and a mentor, and he he cared for my family greatly, and he was extra, man. I, he was just like, he, people were intimidated by him because he was just like, he would preach, he would point that finger. I loved him. And one day, Jack was preaching. I'm going to read you this. This is from an, a, a quote from an NBC News story. Jack was preaching, and I'm just guessing he was bringing it. And it said, Jack Arnold quoted the 18th century Bible scholar John Wesley, who said, Until my work on earth is done, I am immortal. But when my work for Christ is done, I go to be with Jesus. And then Jack dropped dead with his finger in the air. In other words, he literally said to this congregation, Until my work on earth is done, I am immortal. And then after that, I go to be with Jesus. And he fell over dead. He was so dead that they could not revive him at all. That's the Jack Arnold principle. Right? Until God is done with you, you are immortal. No one can arrest you. In Jesus' case, no one can touch you. I remember when I was in 2017, May 4th, I had a brain bleed. And the doctor came in to talk to my family and all the friends that were there. And he said, wow, this is really interesting because people who have what you had, 50% of them die within 15 minutes and the other 50% are basically dysfunctional and, and vegetative for the rest of their life. And I said, what does that make me? And he said, well, you're a statistical anomaly. I was like, hmm, we call it miracles, but you know, whatever. But if I thought of it, I would have said, that's Jack Arnold principle. You can hit me with anything, but apparently God is not done with me. So what's interesting is that whole event actually invigorated me. Rather than saying, oh man, I can't believe that God let something bad happen to me. It was like, oh, he's not done. So I can risk even more. I'd encourage you to, to be getting in that mindset. Right? This isn't my last sermon here, but we're getting close. And so I feel like I need to encourage you. Like God is doing great things here. He's doing great things through your elders. Greater things even than even six months ago. In fact, I've told the elders, man, if I knew how, how gifted you guys were and how much you were able to do, I would have left years ago. They're killing it. But I'd ask you as the church be praying, what is God leading you to do? Where is he leading you to participate? Where is he leading you to actually make this happen? So think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would just, um, you would lead us. And I think that probably you are leading us. I pray that you maybe would give us eyes to see where you are leading us. That you would lead maybe some to trust Jesus for salvation, maybe for the first time. And the rest of us, maybe you'd lead us uh, into some ministry where we can serve you and serve the church. Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.